everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, is my co-hostess, Vanessa Hogel. And down in the chat room, our chat shenanigator, Shauna, shaking everything up. We have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight. The amazing Johnny Enoch is with us. He's a researcher of the esoteric, a seeker of lost knowledge. He's also a clinical hypnotherapist, and he was one of my co-stars on the Alaska Triangle. We are very happy to have him with us tonight. Johnny, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on the edge of the rabbit hole. <laughs> we're we're going to dive we're right excited. down there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Johnny, first and foremost, you know, kind of how we start everybody off. You know, how did you how did you get into this field? What was your interest? How did you get on this path doing what you do now? Well, Mike, I, I think my path started when I was very young. I was having these unexplainable experiences and probably you and uh, both of you and all of our viewers here today can relate to this. You know, we sometimes have these experiences that sort of defy uh, common explanations. So for me, when I was very young, I would have these experiences where I'd be floating up, rising above my bed and looking down at myself peacefully, just, just sleeping there. And in other times, I'd be thrust up into these multicolored, hollow fractal energies and end up out there in the middle of the universe. And the problem with this is that I lived in a very religious household, which uh, I, I know, Vanessa, you coming from Alabama, you've probably seen that there's a lot of religious folks out there. Okay. So in, in my household, when I was at the dinner table, Mike, I'd be talking about something like this and it was just, it was stopped right there. I couldn't even say the word helicopter because it would get changed to heaven a copter. So in, in <laughs> oh my, my world, it, it was this obsession with collecting everything I could get to find out about these experiences. I was getting esoteric books and I was hiding them under the bed with crystals and I was just obsessed with this for years and years. And then later it just sort of naturally unfolded to using clinical hypnotherapy counseling and psychology to go into the deeper recesses of the mind to discover that all of us, even us extra, uh, us ordinary folks have extraordinary memories. And that started leading me out into these adventures, much like the way you guys do it, of, of going around the world, of looking in these sacred sites, visiting these megalithic temples and you know, you crawl on your hands and knees and you start seeing on these reliefs that we have inscriptions and hieroglyphics and keys into the mysteries of the universe. And somehow that led to me being on the show talking to you both now. <laughs> Along it the way. It really is crazy how similar it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like so, so we, uh, Johnny, I, I believe I've had you on my social media on Facebook for a while now, but we really connected here over the Alaska Triangle. And um, I really appreciated your expertise on that show. You had a lot of great insight. And um, so what do you think about the activity that's going on up there in Alaska? We were kind of talking before the show about that and how it's interconnected with the rest of the world, too. Well, I want to pay the same compliment back to you and thank you for the kind words. I really enjoyed what you were doing on the show also, how you were taking these theoretical explanations and you were, you know, bringing this actual evidence in there, measuring these things and bringing your expertise in there, which I really appreciated. You know, the thing about Alaska is that here's a completely mysterious place, all right? 
We know there's 33,000 miles of coast, over 3 million lakes, over 16,000 people have gone missing there over the last 30 years. You know, we've had UFO sightings. There is a culture of elongated skulls there, indigenous legends about giants, lost pyramids, sphinxes there. This place has magnificent, crazy energy there. And I just think that the mysteries that we have there are not only overwhelming, and it's gonna take a long time for us to decode them all because of the, the energy fields and what we're starting to see there, but it just shows us that there's so much about the world that we don't understand. There's so many of these great mysteries. Do you think um, that the energy that is there is continued on to protect the very areas that you're talking about so that they can't be found? Well, I think that's part of it. You know, here's the thing is that when you look around the world on our sacred sites and uh, Vanessa, before you, you came out there, you came on today, uh, you know, before the show, I was talking to Mike about this is that when I've gone over to these places like Egypt uh, on the walls of the temples in Egypt, on the reliefs, it says that we have this identifier of something called the thorny plant. And the thorny plant grows next to places like Karnak. It grows next to Luxor, next to Dendara. Anywhere that there's a lot of energy, they somehow knew how to build alongside this. The same as when I was over in Bolivia, near Pumapunku or Tiwanaku, uh, there is a, a thorny plant. To the Druids, who I know you're familiar with, Vanessa, mm -hmm. because you were just over in Ireland and Scotland and England, they were talking about the Hawthorne, right? Mm -hmm. Oak, ash, and thorn. So mm -hmm. these places of great energy where our cathedrals and churches have been built alongside, where our great temples, our pyramids, our obelisks have been built alongside. If any of our ancient civilizations that were here were utilizing them, these places, they could be tapped into, they could be magnified. So to answer your question, yes, <clears throat> they, could, they could offer not only this shield of protection, but there's sort of an energy grid that you can plug into, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that I've always wanted to do, and Mike and I have talked about this before at great length, is if there was any way to map out every site that you're talking about, especially with the obelisks in, in, in this particular situation, to map it out and, and use it in earth form, in, in a spherical uh, form, to see, I believe, I personally believe there's a message. I believe it's a map in and of itself, a map in another map that actually leads us to a greater knowledge, kind of like the Library Library of Alexandria, you know, um, before it got burned down and all of the knowledge that was held in there mm -hmm. that was just completely destroyed. I feel like we have the same situation to a certain degree here. If we could just do that one simple thing that seems to be the impossible, and that's to connect all the dots. If we can connect all those dots, that will give us the picture or the map to lead us to the additional information that we need to further ourselves. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there have been people that have taken this on. There was one guy named Dr. Ivan Sanderson back in 1972 that was mapping out vortices or vile vortices and energetic pathways on the planet and most certainly we know that there are areas like the 33rd parallel so when you look at longitude and latitude so uh again mike and i were talking about this just before the show is mm -hmm. that okay we look at places like the great pyramid in egypt in giza 
Look over at Glastonbury Tor, which is a sacred site over by Somerset in England. Uh, look over at places like Area 51. Now, all those areas that we see, we start corresponding to great energetic pathways. One of the most surprising one that I think people would find when they connect the dots, which is why I love your question, Vanessa, is that if you could map them out, you're going to see where we have more sacred sites and anomalies, even ones that have disappeared and dropped off into the ocean. Okay, mm -hmm. because we know that the the Earth fifty thousand years ago was much was a much smaller place. At the same mm -hmm. time, there's a reason we look like everything fits together like puzzle pieces when you look over at a map, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because you know we had a great global dissemination of cultures. We have pyramids on both sides of the Atlantic. We have uh, uh, pyramids over not only in Egypt. We find them over in the Yucatan. Uh, with uh, Quetzalcoatl, Kukulikan. We find them over in Tikal in Guatemala. We find 140 pyramids off the Azorean Islands. We find pyramids over in China. They're everywhere. So we, we know that there is a pathway that we could trace just like you're saying. But something I was talking to Mike about, which I think is one of the most wonderful things to look at, is this is an ancient science. So have you guys ever been to Disneyland? A long time ago. Disney World. I haven't been to Disneyland, but um, Mike, I, I, I watched, I watched your... Uh, your show on your channel uh, about Disneyland, which I thought was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. And Disney World is awesome. It's got Epcot. It's in near Celebration, Florida there. It's everybody should see Disneyland at Disney World at least once in their life. But OK, so Disneyland is built using these principles. And you might find that places that are not only have a lot of hauntings, as you guys have seen in your incredible investigations of uncovering this uh, multi-dimensional reality in our multiverse and what's surrounding us. Uh, but if you go to Disneyland, when it was being built and Walt opened those doors on July 17th, 1955 at 1313 South Harbor Boulevard. And that's an important number because mm -hmm. 1313, if there's any Masons watching, uh, there's a Masonic cipher that 1313 is MM for not only Mickey Mouse, but Master Mason. But if you go into Disneyland, Walt was obsessed with the Rosicrucian and the Masonic Mysteries. So one thing that's very interesting about this is that when he built Disneyland, he contracted out the guys over from SRI, which you've done remote viewing, right, Vanessa? Mm -hmm. So you're probably well familiar with the Stanford Research Institute mm -hmm. with guys like Dr. Hell Putoff, Yuri Geller, Ingo Swan, right? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the trippy part. And uh, I'll just finish this up really quickly, is that the guys that put Disneyland together for Walt Disney, there were two guys named Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood and Buzz Price. So Buzz and Woody, does it sound familiar? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Toy Story. <laughs> Right. So they, they worked for SRI and they were in all kinds of trippy stuff like ancient sciences and all this. So they built along this energetic pathway. They used an ancient consciousness technology that we know that our entire planet's been built along this grid. They put Disneyland in there and they smack dab the castle in the center of the influx of where this energy is. And then they threw the carousel behind the castle in Fantasyland to act like a Tesla coil to spin the energy out in the park so you feel really good when you're there. So this was built using these same energetic principles. And so this stuff is, this has been going back a long way. Uh, and we might wonder why there's, there's great energy and it brings it back to what Mike was measuring over there in Alaska. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's amazing how all of these different things tie in and you, 
Another thing you pointed out in that uh, video was all the symbolism that's around the theme park, like Club 33 and, and some of the different things with Pirates of the Caribbean and all that, which I absolutely you know, find fascinating that you, you see all these different little clues embedded in, it's a theme park, but yet there's clues to our ancient past right there. Absolutely. Now that's the thing about Walt is that he was such a fascinating guy. He was a, a member of D malaise, which is a sort of a, it's more of a youth order of a Masonic order. But at the same time, he was fascinated by the Rosicrucian mysteries. And in any of that type of thinking, you think you remember to leave signs and symbols behind in your work. So it's interesting, like you pointed out, if you go over into the areas of Adventureland and Frontierland, when you're in Disneyland, and you go into the area, it's, it's a very interesting thing because there's a hidden club that a lot of people don't know about. It's called Club 33. And again, this is just like the ancient energy we're talking about on our planet, the geomagnetic energy. We know that there's an energy in our body called Kundalini, which is bioelectrical. So this is why you have uh, the raising of this energy up the spine is the 33 vertebrae of the spine. It's the same in Scottish Rite Freemasonry, symbolically encoded of the 33 degrees or the 33 years of work in Christ. Uh, or as we can go on in the mysteries, that's a very significant number. So there's a tapping into this energy in the body, which the masters on this planet, when they figured it out, they had the, uh, you know, the awakening of this, even with the caduceus of the medical symbol on your ambulance. The Egyptian kings had this on their headdress with the serpent awakened out of their pineal gland. So with this 33, this Club 33, it was originally reserved for 33rd degree masons. Uh, later on, it devolved from that, and it became just a very exclusive, expensive hidden club uh, for the wealthy, as it is today. And it's right above it's right above the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, for a reason. And if you remember, Mike, why I said that in the video, it's it's interesting because the old Masonic club that was there for employees during Walt's day was actually the entrance was hidden inside of the pirates of the Caribbean. Right. But this is a salute to all their old buddies because the pirates of the Caribbean, a lot of people don't know when, how they came about was because if you looked over at the persecution of the Knights Templar order, we know we go back to Friday, the 13th, 1307 for the persecution of Jacques de Malay. Mm -hmm. which is why 13 is a very important number in the Masonic order, even uh, in that symbolism. Uh, so what we see over there is that they were being persecuted. They were being chased out of their respected homes. So they became the Knights of Malta, and then they became the Pirates of the Caribbean. And all that money then went into the World Banks and all those other areas, as we know, history tells us. So the fascinating part about this story is that Club 33 being next to the Pirates of the Caribbean is a salute to all their old buddies. And the Jolly Roger was one of their yeah. one of the Templar symbols originally, wasn't it? The witches? The Jolly Roger? Yeah, well, you got the Jolly Roger with the skull and the crossbones. So there's some very <laughs> significant symbolism there that's fascinating. I have an interesting but. tidbit for you. Um, First off, my family, my dad's side of the family that came from England, they were Knights Templars. Um, and my son, who was 17, was born on December, Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> wild. <laughs> yeah. So I you might have consistent. Yeah. Huh? You, think he, you, you think he's the reincarnation of Jacques de Molay? You, you know, one would never know. He's, he, he is a, he's a very gifted child. Well, the, 
that's that's incredible uh you know and that that's a that's a beautiful thing when you see these connections but you know that's that's the thing we've had all these amazing connections in our lives we never know you know where these pathways you know lead to you know uh with disneyland though there's so many other really interesting and fascinating little things that were encoded into it uh you know, just you could go on for hours with all the interesting stuff, like where the submarine ride is today that used to be dedicated to Atlantis. There's hidden obelisks around the castle. Um, if anybody's watching that is interested in Freemasonry, there's even a box that was there. It was moved twice, once by the Jungle Cruise and then uh, over to the area by Tom Sawyer's Island. It says this is the working tools of H. Abiff, of course, the Hiram Abiff. Mm -hmm. uh, is associated with masonry. So yeah, there was lots of little clues like that that were interesting. Wow. John D's uh, channels, Metaphysical uh, Source, which I have the link down in the description, guys. So after this, and well, after Beyond the Shadows later, go to his channel, watch that stuff. It's really interesting. So Thank you so I'm, much. I'm gonna. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so talking about uh, ancient symbolism, and you did actually uh, mention Atlantis in there. So I'm going to like dive really deep down the rabbit hole and um, yes. throw a question at you here. Uh, it was part of my research um, in, in dealing with portals and vortices and, uh, and, and symbolism, of course. So a lot of these ancient symbols, and I was just in uh, Chaco Canyon uh, back in November, and I you know got to see cool. one of these firsthand, um, is that the, the spiral or the concentric circles, which one of the theories is that this was symbolizing you know portals in the ancient world. And just thinking about it, Atlantis, supposed to be, you know, built out of, you know, these concentric circles. So, you know, hypothetical question here, do you think it could be possible that perhaps Atlantis was a giant portal? I believe that, uh, well, first of all, that's a very good question and thank you for asking it. I think that Atlantis has been hypothesized to be a lot of things. Right. So, First of all, a lot of people, the, the common theory that we've had about it, if you go back to Manly Palmer Hall, Ignatius Donnelly, go back into Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and others, they all believe that Atlantis was down what we call the Atlantic Ridge. So what that would do in the middle of the Atlantic, that would make the areas by the Azor and the Canary Islands would be the, the mountain peaks of Atlantis. And then maybe if you go over to the Rock of Gibraltar, that would be over what we call the Pillars of Hercules is mm -hmm. what people have thought. Right. Some people nowadays, they've looked over at Moriatana and the, the Eye of Africa, and they said, okay, this area looks like it could match the geographical area for where Atlantis would have been. I personally tend to think that Atlantis was a great continental diffusion of cultures. It was a global dissemination. If you go back 50,000 years on this planet, we know that it was a much better place uh, for us, much more suitable. There was less gravity here. There was more oxygen. Uh, let's put it this way. If you were to bring the dinosaurs back today, they wouldn't survive. Yeah. So, uh, I, again, look at this culture of pyramids we have all over the world. We have a very advanced civilization that was here, which I believe potentially was also connected into the areas of Alaska and everywhere you were visited. So I think that these anti-Diluvian civilizations go way back. And let's just take it back to the Atlantis story for a second, Mike. So we get the story of Atlantis from Plato. So people always think, hey, this has got to be a Greek story, right? But we know that Plato, he gets the story over from his uncle Critias, who gets it from his great, great, great grandfather, uh, Solon, 200 years prior. 
in Egypt. He travels to Egypt when it was called Sais. He's at the Temple Nefru, which washed away on the Nile Delta. And he th this is at around the year 600 BCE. He goes and meets with a guy named Sanchis. And Sanchis goes, chill. You know, he's like, chill out, Solon. You guys think you got all this, this incredible information about this, this, the world and what happened, that there was a flood story some 12,000 years ago. That's all you got? They said, let me just lay some knowledge on you. And he says... Okay, so there was this civilization that existed some 9,000 years prior, and they're called Atlantis. Uh, but he goes, there was there's tons of other ones that got wiped out. There's countless ones oh, that go sure. back so long, so far away that they were there that we don't even know how to recount them. They're wiped out by fire, by natural disasters, by cataclysms, right? But he says that, okay, so we go back 9,000 years before him. That brings that to about 11,600 or 12,000 years ago when we know we had stuff like the Younger Dry's Cataclysm and everything like that. Right. Now, we find an exact replica of this particular story that's on the wall uh, over at the Edfu Temple of Egypt. And what's really interesting about this, if you look at this seafaring people that are all on the wall, we see right above them that there is a serpent coming down from the heavens and destroying them, the replica of the story. Now, if the serpent represents energy, could it be that they were experimenting with a sort of geomagnetic energy using these fields and these grids we were talking about. And they were experimenting with these obelisks. Do I believe they had portals? Do I believe this was part of what we call Atlantis? Absolutely they did. In fact, we have it in plain sight, my friend. It says in these areas that these are stargates. Um, there are places that they mark very clearly uh, that it's that is marked where the stargates go that these places are connected all around the planet and we have the same iconography or symbolism that these are stargates or false doors that lead from one place to the other now if i were to ask you really quickly what do you think granite is made out of well it's like isn't it like 55 percent quartz right yeah. so most of our pyramids and obelisks are granite right yeah okay so here's one for you if we look what quartz is made out of or granite we get silica right right mm -hmm. okay now follow along with me on this one silica is where we get silicon microchips where they are great insulators and conductors of electromagnetic energy and you mentioned quartz uh now do you guys know what kind of energy comes from quartz well from regular quartz from just like the the it's i don't know if this is the answer to the question <laughs> Go ahead and say Between that again, Johnny. A solid oh, no. Vanessa, you're cutting out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Vanessa's cutting out. Okay. So it has piezoelectrical energy, uh, which maybe you said, but I didn't hear you, Vanessa, because you were cutting out. That's okay. So with the piezoelectrical energy, these places are conducting unbelievable amounts of energy. So really quickly, uh, you know, have you guys ever heard of the story about when Napoleon went to Egypt? I've heard yes. parts of it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Napoleon comes to Egypt, right? 1798. He comes in there and he usurps a lot of stuff for himself, helped himself to all the antiquities, which he dumped over into the Louvre to this day. Just, the, the Egyptians aren't too happy about a lot of that today, but it's there. So he goes over there, but the first thing he does, he goes up into the Great Pyramid and he spends the night there. He's a tough guy, so he's thinking, you know, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to spend the night. Everything's all good. He comes out the next morning white as a ghost. He was shook up from what he experienced. And there's a very real reason for that. 
because of, of what the transference of energy is doing in there in a, in a place like that with granite, sandstone, and limestone. It, it demagnetizes your hotel key when you go in there. Now, when you're up in there, you, you always have these consciousness transference sort of experiences. Well, he comes out the next day. He doesn't want to talk about it. He's just, his lips are sealed. He doesn't want to go into it. He just, till the end of his life, he keeps this mum's the word. He doesn't talk about it. He reveals later he saw his Waterloo. His whole life flashed before him. He saw everything. He had an out-of-body experience. Now, we fast forward over to the year 1930. There's a man named Paul Brunton. Paul Brunton, he decides to, and, and he writes about this in his book, In Search of Secret Egypt. He decides to go up into the pyramid and retry this and re-experiment for himself to try doing this. He goes and spends the night up through the king's chamber. And the only thing he brings with him is a little candle, sort of like what Vanessa does when she goes into these haunted castles over in Ireland and people <laughs> tell her not to. <laughs> and she's got <laughs> someone dangling off the side with a ladder. Well, the... You go up into this thing. He goes into the Great Pyramid. He's lying down, and he starts to get scared as hell after a while. And he's scared as hell because these apparitions start coming up to him. Okay? It's sort of like maybe this is a neutrino light source brushing up against the fabric of space-time. They're, they're coming in there, and they start to scare the hell out of him. He wants to run, but he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to stay here for the night. He said after a while, he was whether he fought it or not, and believe me, I hear this all the time from people we bring up into the Great Pyramid. This happens to people. He was trying to fight it, and all of a sudden, he had an out-of-body experience. His ethereal body was pulling out of his body. So he was there. He was forced to have an astral projection. He's in there, and these priests appear to him, and they take him to a secret chamber of the Great Pyramid in the eastern area. And they show him a hall of records and another Egypt that's there that we know exists. Mm -hmm just like the other world in Ireland. There's another Egypt operating on one on top of the other that they could access. So he takes him, takes him there and he sees that there's a transference of consciousness and he comes back. So we might ask ourselves, Mike, going back to your question about these portals, uh, about Atlantis, is it a portal? Well, yeah, I think that our whole planet is equipped with these. Right, makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Real quick, are you familiar with uh, Freddie Silva? Yes. Okay. We had him on last year and he actually told a somewhat similar story where he and a group were in there. All the lights had gone out. They were doing some uh, cleansing work and some uh, meditation and what have you in there. And they saw light beings coming out of the walls of the Great Pyramid. So very kind of similar type story. So it sounds like this happens there quite a bit. It's that's fascinating. I know that uh, we even have hieroglyphics uh, in Egypt. We have one called Taiwit, which is one Egypt on top of the other, where they believe there's an overlay Egypt in the fifth dynasty pyramid text of Saqqara. Like when you talk about the uh, book of the dead or the book of coming forth by day or coming forth by light, which is the real name. Right, right. exactly. I'm glad you know that. Uh, and with that, not many people do actually. So that's cool that you know that. The, the one thing with it is that in the Fifth Dynasty Pyramid text, we have something called the Field of Mufkuts. So it's like a hyperspace field that they knew how to access. To the Babylonians, we call it the Plain of Sharon, uh, that we could transfer consciousness and go back and forth. So there's, there is a lot of secrets there. Let me ask you this, Johnny. Do you think that when something like that happens, when you take a group in, or um, when you hear about somebody's experience like that, do you think they're chosen to have that experience for a greater purpose? Or do you think it's simply by chance? Well, that's a good question. I think that a lot of the 
a lot of the experiences that we have are all agreed upon with our higher self. So, you know, having worked with people using clinical hypnotherapy over the years, it's quite interesting that when I've worked with people who've been ET contactees, for example, that when they had an experience with seeing UFO or they've seen an extraterrestrial uh, entity come into their bedroom or they were taken is that it was some kind of an agreement they had on a soul level that was for their greater growth and evolution. Even at the, the time, they didn't understand it. So uh, I definitely think that we all have these experiences whenever we're ready, just like you when you're in Ireland and some entity throws something across the room. <laughs> I think it was for the greater good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's something in me that still sees it as ashamed as I am to admit it as separate. And I mean, I've had the UFO experience. I have, I've seen one, my son and I both saw it. Um, and we come to find out that other people had seen it too. And it was actually documented. Um, but I've always separated that experience with the more paranormal experience in my mind. And I'm starting to think that maybe I need to look at them as a whole as as a continuing experience not two separates but one in one whole because i think that i need that for my growth in order to bring better information to to the masses if that makes any sense does that make sense yeah absolutely i mean these experiences are coming at us from a number of ways you know and all of our senses are involved with this and i i think it's it's beautiful when we start to decode them and ask them what they mean because they they all mean something uh, different for everybody. But I think about the incredible gift that you have and the beautiful gift that you share with people as being that that medium, that conduit, that go-between, that walker between worlds that's able to, able to convey those messages to people to give them that hope and that love and that forgiveness that they need, right? I, I appreciate that more than you know. Um, I grew up hearing I was going to burn in hell for this. So the <laughs> fact that the fact that somebody sees it that way and as a gift as i do it's that means a lot i can't even i'm I'm tearing up a little bit i appreciate you i appreciate what you do you know it's very important what you do and you spread hope to people and and remind them that it's that you know there is there is more to all of this and i know it's hard coming from you where the parts where you're from where everybody goes to hell i have a dear friend of mine his name is daniel brinkley and uh he's from the south originally and uh he's survived these near-death experiences and went on to tell his story but uh he always tells me that we're from where the parts where he was from uh he says everyone goes to hell out there oh yeah we're all sinners you know yeah, <laughs> we're <are> all sinners <laughs> you know you need to get those shirts that say sin like you mean it you know um but but no you're you're absolutely right and i think whether it it comes from you know uh the UFO direction where your people are trying to share those experiences to make somebody else not feel so alone or whether it's from somebody like myself that talks to dead people all day long. You know, I mean, it's to let people know that when it's our time, when it's our time to go, hopefully somebody will be there to pass along our messages. That's it. That's it. And well, to do it with respect. That's it. Well, Mike, I think you're especially a sinner. I see all kinds of hellfire and oh, witches oh, and everything absolutely. behind yeah. you. I'm telling yeah. you, that dude right there. <laughs> I went to hell a long time ago. 
<laughs> so, with gotta, ghosty with ghosty yeah ghosty's back back on that side yeah uh got a couple questions from the chat room um and, sure. and you guys can keep tossing them in down there uh first from uh betty Lange. uh she's wondering if you uh teach courses at all oh good question i don't teach courses directly but i i'm gonna be speaking at some conferences coming up if you're out at contact in the desert if they that is if it's not canceled this year due to all the hysteria on the news about right. viruses and stuff like that. But uh, that's around May 29th. I am teaching a workshop there in, in, in addition to giving a talk there and we have some panels and stuff, but yeah, i maybe in the future, there'll be more of that on the site, but I, I do have some retreats and stuff, but I know you guys teach courses also, don't you? Um, no, I kind of do the same as you. <laughs> I go to conferences yeah. and I speak. And of course, there's yeah. all the information I put up on the channel. But um, I guess for for you, Johnny, with your you know retreats and the tours and everything they do, if somebody was to hop on a plane next week and uh, go to Egypt, they'd learn a ton. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we're, you know, they still can. They can join us by the end of this week. We had a group that shrunk down very low. I'm completely not worried uh, you know, from where I've seen things on an international level, because I have friends in different, many different countries and many different areas and industries and, and on all sides of the spectrum of this current crisis. And I can empathize where people are coming from. But we can't live in fear for our lives. True. Right. And there's, there's always going to be something in the world. People always tell me, I, I don't even know there, if there was a time when I was traveling to a country, even in Ireland, as you can relate, Vanessa, you go to mm -hmm. Ireland, people like, oh, it's the, you know, some kind of, Brexit problem, or they're saying, okay, Northern Ireland in Southern Ireland, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. You know, it doesn't matter where you're traveling to, whether it's Asia or Cambodia or England or, or one week it's going to be SARS, the next week it's this. So I say we just should wash our hands, take vitamin C, sign up to come to Egypt with me next week. Let's go. <laughs> there you go. And here's the, uh, here's the event yeah. right there. Ancient Stargates uh, of Egypt. Thank you tour. so much yep. for sharing yeah. that. Absolutely. John, I work in healthcare. The, and I'm not like. worried. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you to both of you. Welcome. I wish I could do it. I wish I could go. I would love to go year. to Egypt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if I didn't have a uh, any an event that I'm doing here at the end of the month, I would have jumped right on that. So I love oh, it. Yeah. Come, you guys need to come next year. You'll be my VIP guests of honor. I would love to have you guys. There we go. We'll Might do it. count we'll do on it. it. That would be awesome. I have oh. a little piece of Egypt sitting over here on my bar right now. What do you have? I have, um, his name is Tut, and <laughs> he is uh, an Egyptian boa, I oh, think cool. it's, yeah, he's a, he's just a little dude right now, about 12 inches long, he looks like a really big earthworm, but oh, cool. uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's the kind that stays underground all the time, he's sitting on my bar right now. So you have a, you have a, some of the serpentine mysteries there. There you go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so, question here from Tom McNicholas. Could there be a portal in Alaska connecting to other areas around the world? What could be missing in one area could be found in another area through the portal? Oh, good question. Okay, so I definitely agree. I believe that there are portals in Alaska. Most certainly, if you've been watching the show with Mike yeah. and I, you've, <laughs> you've seen that we've done episodes on there where we're talking about planes that have gone missing. Okay, there's been... Uh, like we were mentioning, there's over 16,000 people that have gone missing over the last 30 years there. So there is probably all kinds of portal activity. And this is, this is something I want everybody to look up at home. Okay. So, you know, it's not a conspiracy. 
Okay, this is something about Egypt, but I'm going to get you thinking about something that's in Alaska. If you go on Wikipedia and you go look up something called Zayet, that's Z-A-W-Y-E-T, and then L-E-L, and then Ariane. A-R-Y-A-N. And Aryan means the naked place in Arabic. Well, if you look over in Egypt, near the ancient city of Memphis, where all the action was, right between Abu Sir, uh, which is the land of Bu Wizard, the land of Osiris, where the beings from Sirius came to Earth, according to the legends, uh, near Abu Sir and Abu Ghraib, there's an area called Zayat el Aryan. Now, if you look it up on Wikipedia, what you'll see, we have a picture there from the 1950s. It's in black and white. And what you'll notice that the that's the last time anyone was allowed to take a picture of this absolutely magnificent unfinished pyramidal complex. It has, from what my sources have told me, uh, not only is it guarded, as we know today, by foreign military, so our guys, very heavily guarded, but it has a complex underneath it the size of New York City, and wow. aircraft can come and go without being seen there. And from what I'm told, in the basement, there's a real live SG-1 situation Oh, really? That's uh, still active there. So that place is kind of the Area 51 of Egypt, and it's where, kind of like the last Indiana Jones movie, you know, that warehouse where they brought all the, the goodies? Yeah. Uh, that's where all the goodies get brought when they're discovered. Now, the other thing is, is that there's other places in the world that are like this, that we know of, that have been mapped, that exist. Uh, and when they're discovered, you know, there's a lot of hush-hush activity that starts to take place. There are places near Alaska. Uh, there, how much time do we have right now? Uh, we got about 20 minutes left. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if you go into Canada, uh, so if we go into certain parts of Canada there, that there's something I like to call the Canadian Area 51. Canada has an Area 51. A lot of people don't know this. There's there's all sorts of underground bases and things that have been built up. And uh, we could actually, it's really interesting why that is. And we could actually talk about that. There's an ancient science that's connected to this energy system that we're talking about. But when you go into Canada, we learn about this from a book that everybody can buy at home. It's by John B. Leith. It's called Genesis for the Space Race. Okay, John B. Leith. Now, this book was released in 1981 and had the oversight of the CIA. And the book talks about at the time during World War II, at the end of the 30s, we have Churchill freaking out about the Germans. And the Germans are developing this round wing craft. Okay, so when they're developing this round wing craft, uh, he goes and has a meeting with then president of the United States of America, who was FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt gets in on a meeting with then Prime Minister of Canada, who is Mackenzie King. And they say, look, we need to have a very large underground facility. We need to find a place that we can put this. So again, we start moving into these far uh, wilderness areas of British Columbia, or even leading up into Alaska. They find an area near uh, the areas near Banff and they use hard rock miners and they dig deep into this place and they build a large underground facility to reverse these ufos mm. and as the story goes they actually started to have an actual exchange program with extraterrestrials and this turned into a very serious base that could only be accessed by railway now it was it took me a hell of a long time to track down the location of this place okay. uh, and that was a bit of an investigation but all up into these areas even leading into alaska we most certainly have similar type of facilities and stories uh this might sound like a very odd question and i don't mean to get anybody in trouble by asking it 
but like you said, with, with the other place that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, you can't take photos of it. The last was in the 1950s. Right. What about satellite photos of these different areas that you're talking about? Are they actually, are the satellites actually positioned in a way that you can't access these particular locations? You, you can try. A lot of places have been blurred out. A lot of confidential there. There's a lot of places that, you know, I've seen evidence for where they blur them out and they make it so you can't see it. And it, it's actually interesting. So we were talking about the serpentine energy, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So we have another type of serpentine energy in our universe. So we mentioned there's a bioelectrical one with Kundalini. We have a geomagnetic on the earth. So we have a universal energy also, but this also okay. affects why our earth has these inner earths and portals and passageways. Okay, so have you guys ever heard of Madame Blavatsky? Yes. Mm -hmm. Madame Blavatsky talked about something called FOHAT, and she said it was a universal energy in our universe that moved like a serpent. And this is how planets formed. There was debris and everything in our universe. This is always moving. So to the German secret societies, they called this Vril. To Nikola Tesla, he called it Scalar. Now we call it zero-point energy. But we now know in our sciences that during the formation of rocky planets, we get an embryonic mass that gathers from the plasma stars. And thanks to centripetal and centrifugal forces, there's a pushing and a pulling. Uh, there is a radioactive decay that starts to take place. And with this heating and cooling, it forms these little pockets in the earth like a honeycomb. And it starts to get these inner earth passageways that are built out into all the rocky planets. They're built in with an inner earth area that could be uh, traversed. Now, what happens also is that it gathers moisture with the heating and cooling. That's why there's more water inside the earth in something called the underwater mantle than there is on the earth's surface with all of our oceans. So it's very interesting that we're always building a pressure in that underwater mantle, uh, which the S would hit the fan if that gets too unstable due to our spatial coordinates. But what I'm trying to say here is that universal pocket we have our planet is built out with all kinds of secret passageways, energetic vortexes that Mike has uh, already mapped out and has the equipment for. And I, I think it's fascinating. Would that almost kind of speak to you know, the hollow earth theory? Not just not, uh, you know, everything completely hollow, but like significantly enough. You're talking about all these different passageways and what have you. Yes, absolutely. Well, Let's put it this way. If you go over to Area 51, so let's bring it back to Area 51. It's uh, an area, by the way, it's a very interesting name, Area 51. Why do you call it Area 51 over in Rachel, Nevada? It's on the 33rd parallel, isn't it? Well, it's on the 33rd parallel, but 0501 is May Day, right? And May Day is a distress signal. Well, it's interesting, too, that the Bavarian founder of the Illuminati, uh, Adam Weishaus started the Bavarian Illuminati on May 1st, 1776. So there's an interesting correlation to May go. Day. It's a fun connection there. But, okay, so when before Area 51 was built, uh, and it was built there on that 33rd parallel, just like Disneyland, to tap into that energetic area because they were trying to, you know, fire up certain ancient things and other stuff that's brought there that where they were finding. One of the interesting things about that is that even before they did that, there was guys like Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard from Scientology. They were doing sex magic stuff over there, which is really interesting. But uh, before they brought that place together, 
you know, there there's all kinds of interesting secrets with it. First of all, even if you were to storm Area 51, as people were talking about, you <laughs> right. wouldn't have found anything. It's it's all underground. Right. Mm -hmm. And many years ago, I'd go there with Jordan Maxwell and he would tell me, he'd say, Johnny, you know, the pie is great here and the coffee is fantastic. But he would say, walk across the street or the road because there's like nobody out there in the middle of Nevada. And you go up to a telephone pole, you put your ear up to it and you hear all these carts and cars moving around underneath there. Just like if you go up to Los Alamos or Dulce, New Mexico, uh, or if you go into the ancient world when we had cataclysms on the face of the earth, we went in places like Cappadocia, Turkey. Uh, look over at the Hydra at the Oracle of Delta, Delphi. Look over in the Templar passageways over from Scotland and other areas that we found deep into these inner earth areas. Uh, and so these networks and pathways are found everywhere. Let me ask you real quick, because you and Mike are both bringing up an excellent question. When you're talking about this this honeycombing of, of planets and these inner passageways. The rabbit holes. The rabbit <laughs> holes, <you> exactly. <laughs> we we have the capability to breathe on, you know, on land. Our atmosphere allows us the, the, the proper percentage of what we need in order to be able to breathe through our lungs. But if we were to go deeper into the earth, into these particular areas, how would that affect the physical bodies that are used to being on the surface? There has to be some type of, of pros and cons to it. And if right. there is those that can go down there, how do they differ from us? Yeah. So imagine this, imagine that in these areas, there's all kinds of fungi uh, and that can sustain life. Imagine that there's uh, luminescent plants, different kind of atmospheric changes. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, if you go look at certain places, uh, there's all kinds of uh, mysteries we find, let's say in Eastern Europe, that there's all sorts of places like, let's say in Hungary, uh, in the areas over outside of Budapest in Hungary or in uh, Vienna, Österreich or Austria or Prague and the Czech Republic and leading up into places like Romania, all those places used to be connected. Uh, they were very much connected in the Carpathian area where they came mm -hmm. from. All of those areas are built with deep underground passageways. Almost all the castles in Hungary have underground tunnels and passageways. Outside of uh, Vienna, Austria, we have all underneath there very deep underground passageways, including in Bucheci of the Transylvania Mountains. We have more deep underground tunnels that the ancients talked about that uh, guys... Uh, going back into Herodotus in uh, book four of the histories, it talks about these people named the Dacians. They had a guy named Zalmoxis who was communicating with the sky gods and going underground there. Uh, and we have this clue to these mushrooms, these statues of mushrooms that are growing that gives us clues on how they were, uh, you know, surviving in these underground tunnels and areas. So I think there's a lot more to this than what we understand and our ability to survive in these sort of environments. We're very resilient. Okay, I guess I, I would have to be. <laughs> okay, you mentioned mushrooms, so I finally found a segue. I've been holding on to this question for a while. Okay, <laughs> this is it's from Shauna, but I know you went to Ireland. You did some work with uh, and researching fairy lore. So, oh, of course, I have to ask you about fairies because Shauna and I have seen some entities that have resembled what could be the mythical fairies. But you actually went to Ireland, started asking those questions about. Yes. you know, what fairies really are. So what did you discover while you were out there? 
And I know it's a totally different subject than what we were talking about. No, no, no. I, I love these subjects because uh, they're all subjects that are near, dear, near and dear to my heart. Actually, I just wrote two new articles about Ireland. I have one coming out this week. And then there's an if you, have you ever read Ancient Origins? Um, and by uh, it's Ancient Origins is an online magazine that deals. Oh, with the history. actual. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to the site. Okay, sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. So <laughs> on Ancient Origins, on the the first article of the day that's coming out on St. Patrick's Day is a new article I wrote on fairies. So look out for it. It's called "The Time cool. I Met the King of the Fairies." Uh, so I I most certainly love the subject. So going back into Ireland, uh, most certainly we were talking about earlier the Tuat the Danann, the people mm -hmm. of the goddess Danu. Now. It's interesting because in Ireland, we find a lot of connections to the Vedas with the Vedantic areas of ancient India and the great mysteries that were there. We know right. if you go back into the Indian books of the Ramayana, the Mahabharata or the Samarangana, Sutradhara and all those books, we talk about Vimanas, these flying machines that were there, right? And uh, uh, Vanessa, you being a pagan, you're well familiar with Kurnunos, the green, mm -hmm. the green man, right? Yes. Now, Kernunos, of course, we know, again, was uh, tuned to the Serpentine Mysteries because his name to the Welsh was Hugh Gadarn, and mm -hmm. uh, the Druids would worship him. But, of course, this is where we get his name was Hugh. This is where we get Hugh Man from, the Hugh Man mm -hmm. that comes from the Serpentine Mysteries. And this is why, again, we have the later adaptation of the St. Patrick story is uh, saying that there were he was chasing the serpents out of Ireland when there was no serpents. So these were the masters of the serpentine mysteries, the Druids. So with this connection that we have to the other world, here we have uh, Kernunos has the exact same body language as Krishna. He's holding the same serpent in the same hand with the cross-legged meditation position. In his other hand, he's holding the infinite symbol of the circle. So again, we have a Vedantic connection to Aryan and Ireland and all those sort of places. So they have this ship coming in that we hear about, these flying ships called uh, that were coming in with the Tuat the Danid. So the Tua Day arrive, and we're told with that with them, they bring with them these inhabitants or beings from the other world, or Tirnanag, Neverland, Middle Earth, there you go. all the names you want to give it, uh, Avalon. <laughs> So uh, with that, they were on Earth for some time in these areas, and we're told that these veils were thinner. And they came to Ireland very specifically. We have some ideas for why that might be. And during after cataclysmic times on the Earth, maybe these were the also um, part of the Proto-Atlanteans or uh, some other groups that later migrated. But with the two a day, they were there for some time, and they were a great magical and mystical people. But later they were chased out by the fear bullock. Uh, now, the fear bullet translates to the men with bags. Have you ever seen those pictures of those okay. men with bags that are... Yeah, they're all over the world. Yeah. They're all right. over we could go off ancient... Of yeah. Exactly. We could go on and on about them, too, because they're very interesting, but we'll keep it on fairies. So, in the fairy lore, so we go into Ireland. Uh, you know, we have a different idea. They're called the good people. Now, some people will say... Uh, when we relate them to the gentry and everything, some people will relate this idea. If you go to Dublin and other places that they'll say that the fairies are just personifications of the great tragedies and misfortunes of the potato famine and other things that happened in Ireland. And uh, they'll just dismiss it. But we have fairy lore all over the world. Right. People talking about fairies in Japan, over in Norway and every area. So I don't buy that story. When you go into the countryside, we sign that people still take fairy, the fairy folk very seriously. And we mm -hmm. have, Exactly. Vanessa knows. 
so you have the idea that we have sometimes the little sylphs, the Tinkerbell style fairies. We have larger fairies. Some folks will say they're tall, just like you and I. Uh, they can appear in so many ways. They live underground in the fairy forts. I most certainly do believe in them. People see them. It's not good to chop down a fairy tree or disturb a fairy home. They're nature spirits, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the the first one that uh, that we saw could have very well been what might, some people might call like a water sprite or something like that because we were right, right on the river. And then this past, um, oh, it was this past September, I was out in New York and basically coming down out of the woods, totally wrong time of year for like fireflies or anything like that. There's little blue lights kept lighting up and, you know, they were on the ground, they were in the air. It's like, you know, and it was there was a lot of like Native American legends and things like that out there. It's the uh, the Hinsdale House. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, we'll have to. I'll have to hit you up offline and, and tell you about some other ideas that I've had about this. And it sounds like you're kind of you know right along the, the same lines um, about you know we've had these legends all over the world, and I believe in some ways, I throw this out there at you that the uh, Hobbit people down in was it Indonesia, um, the smaller humanoid. Right, they, right, the Hobbit people in Java. Yeah, in Java. Okay, that they are or have some relation to the leprechauns in Ireland. Well, we we've definitely seen connections to the pygmy and the uh, the folks with the the Hobbit folks, but I mean those might be where you get inspirations for J.R.R. Tolkien's stories. Uh, you know, which by the way. If you go over to the Cliffs of Moor, we have the Gollum Caves there, and nearby there, J.R.R. Tolkien liked to there sit go. there and drink pints and came up with <laughs> Gollum from Gollum Caves. So most certainly he was inspired by the Middle Earth and the legends that we have. But I most certainly believe in the fairy folk. And I'll tell you something we learned in the stories that we have about them is that the best time to see the fairy folks are during what we call a tween place or a tween time. So that's either on a bridge, for example, because it's neither up nor down or at the uh, dusk or dawn because it's sort of an in-between time or in between right. two tree branches. That's like a glitch in the matrix that we start to see in our particular reality. But for them, they were very sensitive over to the times of the equinoxes. So if, for example, as Vanessa, I know that you've probably been there. You go to a great place like Newgrange, which has a crux-shaped formation of the light, of the energy mm -hmm. of the light of the sun, Right. Mm -hmm. On the winter solstice, on that week of the 23rd, 24th, uh, and 25th, again, it's the, the rebirth of the sun, the story that uh, we get associated in Christianity or Mithraism. Uh, you get the light coming down into that cavity, lighting it up during that particular time. So these folks were very sensitive to that. We'll go into the fall equinox, Samhain, Samhain, Halloween. Uh, this was a time when we saw the Troopin' Fairies. And the Troopin' Fairies were up to no good always be mischievous and causing problems. So you put out a jack-o'-lantern to kind of keep them away, uh, to keep the troop and fairies out. But really quickly, these beliefs we know went back to the pagans, right? Yep. yep. So a lot of people, <laughs> they get spooked out by that word pagan, uh, the, the word pagan that describes Vanessa's beliefs. But the word pagan we know comes from the Pagani, and it just means the country folk or nature. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I have preached that till I'm blue in the face. It, by definition, means country dweller. And when they were coming through spreading Christianity, the pagans were, for the most part, in certain areas, left alone because the church was brought in to bring in money. 
Pagans didn't have any money. They traded chickens for salve and a goat for a blanket. You know, so it was, it doesn't mean devil worshiper. I'm not going to eat your child. I don't like spoiled food. You know, it's not (laughs) anything like that. So thank you for that. Most people can't get that through the noggin. I love that. But you know that when the churches came in later, uh, and really quickly, because I know the clock is ticking there, right, Mike? Yeah, we got a few more minutes, yeah. Okay, well, we got a few more minutes. We'll roll with this really quickly. So if you go to places like the Hill of Tara in Ireland, you'll notice that the church built on top of it. And churches... Uh, churches have been built in really an interesting way. A friend of mine, uh, Jay Widener, he wrote a great book uh, called The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hendai, and he had documented a lot of the secret messages encoded in cathedrals with Fulcanelli and everything like that, that these are like astral um, amplification devices that, for example, when you go into a church and you walk up to an altar, there's a reason it's called an altar because by the time you reach there, you're in an altered state of consciousness. So mm-hmm. even up in Transylvania, where I was telling you guys about near there, where we find something called the Buchechi Sphinx or the Transylvanian Sphinx that's up there <laughs> near the cave of Zalmoxis, that ancient being that Herodotus wrote about in book four of the histories, talking about these folks that were communicating with the sky gods, the cave system that goes down there, that was a sacred place. The Romanian Orthodox church built a a church right on top of that sacred place. As we saw in all the ancient pagan places that were usurped. You may, you actually just answered a question. I didn't even know I had. Well, that is because I am, I mean, I guess I've always wondered to a certain degree being pagan and, and being, you know, I, I, I recognize many gods and I have a different way of doing things very much a nature person. I've always wondered why I've been drawn to churches. I mean, to the point to where I actually get tears in my eyes when I go into one. Um, and I'm always surprised I never catch on fire. But that makes a lot of sense to me. Christ Church brought tears to my eyes in Dublin. Right. It completely did. Uh, the small chapel in Whitby, England, same thing. Actually lit a candle. Um, that makes so much sense that, they're, that, they, that they put them on places like that because it draws everybody in, even right. somebody well, the, like the, myself. That's it. I mean, we got to look at where the word church comes from, though. And so the why do we call it a church? Well, when the Templars were coming back from their crusades, they, they picked up a lot of pagan customs. Mm-hmm. So the word church, when they were going into the Greek mysteries, for example, they encountered Mother Circe. And Mother Circe was a goddess who would hypnotize men or drug them, lure them into her house and devour them like pigs and dogs. And this is why we came up with a word named church, which is very nice. Sorry if I offended anyone out there. <laughs> but if you look at a church, look at everything that's encoded into it from the triptych arch. Uh, We could go off into a giant explanation of the three layers of that that are like the three chambers of the Great Pyramid, Uh, you know, the subterranean chamber, queen's chamber, king's chamber. This is like the Trinity uh, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trimudian Hinduism, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, Osiris, Horus, Isis. Uh, It's another crown. Exactly. And so entered (laughs) apprentice, fellow craft, master masonry. But even the windows on your church uh, are like, the yoni, it's again, it's very, it's got some sexual connotations to creative power. Uh, or you go look over the phallic symbols of the top. This is the areas that we're starting to see that to the regular folks that would see this and start to decode it, they might say, okay, this is vulgar or 
uh, simplistic in its area, but these to the ancients and to those who had looked at the mysteries, these were the greatest of creative mysteries in our universe that were encoded into these places. So when you go into these churches, they like even where you were in Scotland by Edinburgh, you go to Rosslyn Chapel, right? Mm -hmm. With, from the Templars, it's a very significant, holy sort of place that you feel. It, yeah. I, I, lo I love it, except for the big monstrosities that people build today. It's the old churches. It's yes. those that that I'm 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 drawn to, no matter where I go. And it's like I, I have to go. I have to go to them. And yeah. I always show respect, even though the beliefs are different than mine. Absolutely. And and again, this is the same to today's building structures with our architectonics. If you go to these old cities in Europe that are extremely beautiful, even if you walk around Paris, which gets its name from Paris or Paraisis, the city of the light, and the whole city has been built in an occult fashion from the 22 bridges on the Seine River, like the 22 major arcana, or how the uh, Eiffel Tower that was built by Mr. Eiffel is like an obelisk. Uh, there's all kinds of hidden mysteries that are there. The whole city is very beautiful, or in Prague, you see that there's this incredible structures and these cities are like very um, Greco-Roman and whatnot. What we see is that if you go back into our Neoplatonic thinkers, like Plotinus, he wrote in his essay on the beautiful, that the more beautiful your cities were and the more beautiful your aesthetics were, the heightened, the more heightened of a consciousness your civilization was. So think about today in our cities, we have these cold square brick buildings, or even like you right. said, mega churches, they don't do the same thing for you, right? No. I, I run like I, I run from them. I don't want anything to do with them. But a little country church or a church in Whitby or you know in in a little in Balladrine, Ireland, that was the first thing I was drawn to in Balladrine. The very first thing was their church. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. So what you're saying is you don't want a uh, skyscraper of a church with a 24 karat gold uh, statue of Joel Olstein in front of it. Oh, jeez. No, I'm good. And she has plenty <laughs> of those huge churches down there in uh, Oklahoma near her, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Churches, <laughs> liquor stores, and strip bars. <laughs> hey, Tando. all three go together. It's the Trinity. There I'm you go. You. There you go. <laughs> well, we are at our hour mark. Actually, we're a little bit past it, so we need to wrap up. But uh, Johnny has been absolutely amazing. Please go ahead and tell everybody. And, and I'm sorry to um, the viewers down there. We couldn't get to all your questions. You guys had a ton. And, you know, we're getting a lot of information from Johnny here, so we'll have to have him back. But, Johnny, please tell yeah. everybody uh, where they can find you. Well, thank you both, Mike and Vanessa, for having me on this edge of the rabbit hole. It's been a lot of fun. And I think the more we go down, this rabbit hole keeps getting de deeper and weirder the further we go down. So let's do it again sometime absolutely. and yes. bring the viewers back with us. But yeah, absolutely. Where you guys can find me is my website is www.metaphysicalsource.com. I'm on Instagram at Esoteric Johnny. Twitter, you can follow me at Johnny Enoch. And I'm also on Facebook at Johnny Enoch and metaphysical source. So please keep tuning into this show. Remember to like, subscribe, and share it. And you guys are awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Johnny. You. Appreciate it. And Thank I you. did put the links down there um, to Johnny's um, website and his YouTube channel down in the description so you guys can follow there too. So, Oh, and one last thing. If anybody wants to jump on it last minute, there's the info for the uh, Ancient Mystery uh, Tours. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm <laughs> jealous. www.ancientmysterytours.com. We will give a sign-up bonus at the last minute this week. And if you come with us, you're going to have an amazing time. It will be life-changing.
Yeah, I'm going to have to do it next year, but um, you have a fantastic time in Egypt, Johnny. Thank you so much. Thank you both. All right. Have a good night, Hi, my friend. Nice to meet you, Han. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. I need a moment I feel.